So let me read chapter one through chapter two, verse three. The word, and then we'll we'll do we'll spend time in this and interact with it in the way that we seemed to last week. I think it was beneficial rather than me reading prophetic rhythm and rhyme to you. The word of the Lord that came to Zephaniah, the son of Cushi, the son of Gedaliah, the son of Amariah, the son of Hezekiah, in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, the king of Judah. I will completely sweep away everything from the face of the earth. That is the Lord's declaration. I will sweep away people. I will sweep away animals. I will sweep away the birds of the sky. I will sweep away the fish of the sea. I will sweep away the ruins and all along the... Uh, along with the wicked. I will cut off mankind from the face of the earth. This is the Lord's declaration. I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against all the residents of Jerusalem. I will cut off every single vestige of Baal from this place. The names of the pagan priests along with the priests, those who bow in worship on the rooftops to the stars in the sky, those who bow and pledge loyalty to the Lord, but also pledge loyalty to Milcom and those who turn back from following the Lord, who do not seek the Lord or inquire of Him. Be silent in the presence of the Lord God, for the day of the Lord is near. Indeed, the day of the Lord has prepared a sacrifice. The Lord has prepared and consecrated His guests on that day of the Lord's sacrifice. I will punish the officials, I will punish the king's sons and all who are dressed in foreign clothing. On that day, I will punish all those who skip over the threshold, who fill their master's house with violence and deceit. On that day, this is the Lord's declaration, there will be an outcry from the fish gate, a wailing from the second district, and a loud crashing from the hills. What will you residents of Hollow, for all the merchants will be silenced. All those loaded with silver will be cut off. And at that time, I will search Jerusalem with lamps and punish those who settle down comfortably, who say to themselves, the Lord will do nothing good or bad. Their wealth will become plunder. Their house will become a ruin. They will build houses, but they will never live in them. They will plant vineyards, but they will never drink their wine. The great day of the Lord is near, near, and rapidly approaching. Consider, Listen, the day of the Lord. Then the warrior's cry is bitter. That day is a day of wrath, a day of trouble and distress, a day of destruction and desolation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and total darkness, a day of a ram's horn and battle cry against the fortified cities and against the high corner towers. I will bring distress on mankind and they will walk like the blind because they have sinned against the Lord. Their blood will be poured out like the dust and their flesh like dung. Their silver and their gold will be unable to rescue them on the day of the Lord. The whole earth will be consumed by the fire of his jealousy for he will make a complete, yes, a horrifying end of all the inhabitants of the earth. Gather yourselves together. Gather together, you undesirable nation. Before the decree take effect, the day passes like chaff. Before the burning of the Lord's anger overtakes you. Before the day of the Lord's anger overtakes you. 
Seek the Lord, all you humble of the earth who carry out what he commands. Seek righteousness, seek humility. Perhaps you will be concealed on the day of the Lord's anger. I just need you to know that I spent a good bit of time preaching to teenagers during the summer, and they always make me sit down and have a meeting and let people know what I'm going to preach. And when I say something like Zephaniah, they laugh. Like, you're going to do what? Well, we're going to walk through this really weird book of the Bible. This really strange book, because it's heavy, and it's full of difficult language. But we have to look at this passage and see that God is serious about his people. He's serious in this text about Jerusalem, and he's serious in this room about us. He is serious about us, and we have to make sure, when we are considering that, that we start here. Before we ever see God dealing with those who are not from the people of God, we've got to look at the hearts of the people of God. We easily give ourselves over to being they people. Well, they do this, and they do that, and I can't believe they would do that. They, they, they. All the while overlooking and undervaluing the wickedness that is even in each and every one of us. Francis Schaeffer said this, and the quote may be on the screen, The beginning of men's rebellion against, against God was and is the lack of a thankful heart. All of this starts because these people are not grateful for what God has done. They have overlooked it. They have undervalued it. They have underappreciated him. They have taken him for granted. They have believed him to be passive. And in believing him to be passive, they have taken and brought other gods upon themselves. And in bringing these other gods upon themselves, they are doing what any of us do when we bring other gods upon ourselves. We are giving ourselves an idol to worship. And that idol is always a reflection of us. Idols aren't real. They're just not. They display what our hearts really want. So just to give you a, a, a little bit of a backdrop as to what's taking place historically, this is written in around the 7th century. That is, the Bible numbers are weird. That is after the 6th century before the 8th. So if you're going to work through that with me. Joash is the king and Zephaniah is kind of his cousin. I don't think they were Bo and Luke kind of cousins, but maybe Bo and Vance. That, that's the nature of their friendship with each other. That's a Dukes of Hazard joke. It's completely over most of your heads. He grew up around... So Zephaniah, the author of the book, grew up around terrible, false, wicked gods. There was the influence of Manasseh, one of the former kings of Judah. There was also the influence of Ammon, his son, who was also wicked because we have a recurring theme when we read through these books that the people have wicked kings. They are idol worshippers. They are prone to child sacrifice and other pagan unjust killings. When Joash takes, when Josiah rather takes over, he is king and he is at the age of eight. Do I have any eight-year-olds in the room? Do any of you know an eight-year-old? How many of you would like for an eight-year-old to run your house? I don't let my eight-year-old decide when they go to bed. But you've got this kid who is running the world. At that point, he is influenced by a status quo priest. His name was Hilkiah, and he just kind of went with the flow. 
par for the course at the time. At the age of 16, Zephaniah steps in. He is the prophet of the Lord. And he begins to talk about what is taking place in the hearts of Jerusalem. And as you read through this text, God is using Zephaniah to speak to everything that's taking place around town. To everything that's happening in the lives of these people. To everything that you are seeing in what is called and known as the city of God. At 16, Zephaniah, it seems like what he's saying takes Josiah, or looks and says, I'm going to remove the pagan altars from Jerusalem. Those high, those high poles, they're down. The false gods, they're out. At, twi- at, six, at 20, he removes them from the entirety of Judah. At the age of 28, he realizes that the temple has been overlooked and that it needs to be rebuilt. And he finds the law of Moses and the weirdest thing happens, he reads it. And when he reads from the law of Moses, his heart turns even more towards the things of Yahweh. Because God will turn our hearts towards him as we trust him and his word. God speaks to his people from his word. I, I, I don't know how to say this any more clearly read your Bible it's a really helpful book Zephaniah was under this wicked king Manasseh and here are some of the things that Manasseh had brought in because we're talking about knocking down those gods let's talk about who those gods are they had the planet gods they have the star gods they have a god named king which is sort of kind of confusing he is the, he is the god of death They have Milcom, the god of the Ammonites, who was given the place of chief god on par with Yahweh. Though they didn't remove Yahweh. Moloch is the worst. He's had children sacrificed to him. These, unlike Yahweh, these gods only have power because the people give it to them. These are people who claim to be the chosen people of Yahweh, yet they have merged false faiths into their faith narrative, therefore completely divorcing themselves from it. The kings who preceded Josiah, they merged everything in for a reason. They didn't want to miss any base. When you read through these prophets, they speak consistently, not everyone, to idolatry. How does God speak to the idolatry in my heart and in yours? What is God doing to undo your idolatry right now? In what way is God talking to you so that idolatry does not manifest and rear its ugly head? We have idols. We can make an idol of anything. Are we making idols of everything? You get to two, or chapter 1, 2 through 4, rather chapter 2 verses 1 through 4, And you see God calling these people to repentance. It's the strangest thing about the God who we worship. 
as much as he looks at us and sees the, the sin in our hearts and, and the destruction that we deserve, he is always consistently beckoning for people to turn to him. He calls for his people to return to him. He encourages those who are far from him to be near, to, 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 to draw near to him. God's concern is for us. He cares for us. And he wants us to be in rhythm with him and will go to great lengths so that we can establish shalom with him. When you look at 7, or chapter 1, verses 7 through 16, you see it's this warrior passage. And if you put that in the... If you put those words in the wrong hands, you can turn that into Jesus, the, the grunge metal Jesus, or, or whatever. But let's not miss that all of the speech here in seven, chapter 1, 7 through 16, as to God dealing with sin and God judging sin, there is a person who receives that judgment. So that the whole world could turn to him. So that people who were far from him could be near to him. And so there's a question that takes place when you get to chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. Gather yourselves together. Gather yourselves in an undesirable nation. Before the decrees take effect and the days pass like chaff. Before the burning of the Lord's anger overtakes you. Before the day of the Lord's anger overtakes you. God's inviting these people through Zephaniah to turn to him. So you imagine that you're Zephaniah and you're standing in the city courts. I that he was incredibly well received in Jerusalem. Listen to Zephaniah just being mean to everybody again. And as he is displaying and delivering the word of the Lord, you have this question, is God dealing with, is he calling people to repent? It doesn't necessarily seem to say that he's calling people to repent. There's this intertwined thing that takes place in the scripture. It's the idea of, of God's judgment and God's mercy. God's judgment is at work and His mercy is at work. And when the Scriptures discuss those simultaneously, we are finding out something about our God. Here's the truth. You don't need God to tell you that He's going to judge. He just does. When God talks about judgment, it's an invitation to His mercy. Because He is saying there's a way from this. And for those of us who are close to him in this room, who, who would claim that we have a relationship with him in this room, would we turn from the things in our hearts and in our lives that we have elevated to places that they do not belong? Because make many bones about it, those high places, they're still high. Sometimes they just look like pictures of our children. God's calling these people to turn to Him and to believe in Him and to trust in Him. We are people who are called by God to see that God, in, He comes low to meet with us. He descends to where we are so that we can be with Him where He is. He's talking about wiping things away. Not only do we see that in the text, we see that God is serious about the nations. And I'm going to make sure that we just hit this at a, at a running start. When you go into chapter 2, 
verses 4 through 9, really 4 for a, a good while, he begins to deal with his judgment, not just for the people of Israel, but his judgment intertwined with his mercy for those who are far from him. It's an intertwined concept in the Scripture, the judgment and the mercy of God. And when you look through chapter 2, you read over and over and over, and you see him point out the Philistines. Shout out, Goliath. We see him mention Moab and Ammon and Egypt and Assyria. All the while, God is saying, judgment for you, judgment for you, judgment for you. And then at the end, he tells ends and says, in Jerusalem, you get judged too. So while we can get really caught up in what's taking place outside of us with the they's, let's not miss what's taking place with the we's. That we have wicked hearts. That my heart is far from the Lord. That your heart is far from the Lord. If we are not continually turning toward the mercy that He's offered us, and in turning toward His mercy, it means you're turning from something else. We always are. To turn to Him means you turn from something. Otherwise, you're not turning. God calls His people to see this in this text. And then he points out in chapter 3 that Jerusalem itself is oppressive. That Jerusalem needs to be dealt with. And that God is serious about dealing. Again, is God urging people to repent? Is God calling people from far away that worship pagan religions, whatever pagan religion we choose to paganize. Does he still do that? When we spent time in Jonah last year, the, the phrase that we mentioned that got the biggest response from the kids in the room was the message that God sent Jonah to the people of Nineveh with. Five syllables, eight words in English. Ud, abid, amin, upuket. And remember I had you say hot pocket and that was fun. In 40 days, this city will be destroyed. But all the while, God using that to confront the fact that these people needed to turn from and turn to Him. That we would be people who see that we need the mercy of God. And that as followers of Yahweh through the shed blood of the crucified Jesus, the warrior who took death upon Himself and went to war with hell on a cross that we would see his call to mercy is his call call for us to be people of mercy is a continual call when we read through passages like this we are seeing God talk about his mercy while he said lets us know the 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 other side of the coin the strangest thing about mercy though is it has to go to those who ask for it. People who label themselves as good don't ask for mercy. 
When we think we're okay, we're not, God, just show, show me mercy today. Here are the things that we pray for. And by we, I mean me and maybe you. We ask him to guide us. We ask for health. Safe travels. Lord, give me strength. Jesus following person has your faith grown so stagnant that you have forgotten your need for the mercy of God because this people these people need the mercy of God but not just them these all of us And I would encourage us just to, to pray and to ask God, God, would you do things that help us to see that we need and those who are outside of you need your mercy? There's a culmination of it coming in Zephaniah chapter 3, verse, verse 9. You read this verse. and For then I will restore pure speech to the people so that all of them may call on the name of the Lord and serve him with a single purpose. A couple of things are happening in this book that we miss. One is when you read through the, the first, it, you see that it is a reversal of what we see in the story of Genesis. God takes from nothing and makes something. And here God is saying, from something, I'm going to make it into nothing so that you can see how much you need me. And here we see an echo of what we see at the Tower of Babel because God is saying, hey, the whole break... The whole world, we can't even communicate with one another. So I'm going to restore a common speech for those who are my people called and who have received my mercy, and I want you to know what that pure speech is. Well, what is this pure speech? Well, some say that it's Hebrew. It's definitely not English. Do you know how hard English is if you're not an English speaker? We have so many weird verbs. God restoring pure speech, Him uniting His people for the sake of His kingdom, for the celebration of His mercy, by His warrior being crucified so that we could have life. The undoing of Babel. God is making a promise that He is going to undo chaos. And then in chapter 3, verses 10 through 20, you see him in our midst. And I don't want us to miss it. That, that phrase, in, my, in your midst or among you, it runs through the whole book. What a promise God makes to his people as he confronts us about our sin. I, I'm among you, I'm with you, I'm, I'm in your midst. And that conviction that you sense because of the sin in your heart is because I'm in your midst. I've not abandoned you to your sin. And we should thank God regularly that he's not abandoned us to our sin. Because our sin is terrible. I'm in your midst. I'm in your midst. I'm in your midst. I'm, I'm, I'm for you. Chapter 10. I mean, rather, <laughs> there is not a tenth chapter. It would be a, a major prophet. 
Chapter 3, verse 10. From beyond the rivers of Cush, my, supplicant, my supplicants, my dispersed people, will bring an offering to me. On that day, you will not be put to shame because of everything you have done in rebelling against me. For then I will remove from among you your, ju- your jubilant, arrogant people, and you will never again be haughty on my holy mountain. I'll leave a meek and I'll leave a humble people among you, and they will take refuge in the name of the Lord. The remnant of Israel will no longer do wrong or tell lies. A deceitful tongue will not be found in their mouth. They will pasture and lie down with nothing to make them afraid. Sing for joy. There are multiple songs throughout the book I won't sing. Sing for joy, daughter Zion. Shout loudly, Israel. Be glad and celebrate with all your heart, daughter Jerusalem. The Lord has removed your punishment. He has turned back your enemy. The King of Israel, the Lord, is among you. You need no longer fear harm. On that day, it will be said to Jerusalem, Do not fear Zion. Do not let your hands grow weak. And then we get to 17, which is a verse that you may know. It may be on your long list of tattoo verses. The Lord your God is among you. He is a warrior who saves. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will be quiet in his love. He will delight in you with singing. And then you get to hear as God tells you what he will do. I will be faithful. I will gather those who have been driven from the appointed festivals. They will be a tribute from you and a reproach on her. Yes, at that time I will deal with all who oppress you. I will save the lame, and I will gather the outcasts. I will make those who were disgraced throughout the earth receive praise and fame. At the time, I will bring you back. Yes, at the time, I will gather you. I will give you fame and praise among all the peoples of the earth when I restore your fortunes before your eyes. The Lord has spoken. The Lord saying to us, I will, I will, I will, I will. So for every one of us who are in really dark places who believe that, man, this has been a a, a beat-me-up sermon. Congratulations. I'm glad you were here this morning. God's not waiting for you to straighten yourselves out or fix yourselves up or tighten up your bootstraps if you're even wearing boots. And I don't know why you're wearing boots. It's super hot outside. Ultimately, because God is serious about His relationship with you, His faithfulness will be what carries you through. And if there's conviction in the heart of you, that means that you see your need to remember and not overlook or overturn or undervalue His mercy. I will turn. I will. I will. I will. God is the one who is going to do all that needs to be done. He's the winner. You get to be there with him. So would we pray and would we ask that God, who is serious about relationships with people both near and far, both believers and unbelievers, would we pray that he would convince those of us who are his of our need for his mercy and in so doing display those who are outside of relationship with him a need for his mercy? Because he deals with his people first. 
Would we pray that He would deal with us? Will we ask Him to do that? Would you bow your heads with me this morning? couple of things the first is this if you are here and you're a believer and you look at your own life and you see how you have overlooked or undervalued the mercy of God before you jump up and start singing because that's what people expect you to do right now is to jump up and sing maybe just sit there for a second If you need to focus, what if you read over chapter 3, verse 17, four or five times? If you're thinking, Chad, that sounds repetitive, just know these prophets are repetitive. And they were repetitive for a reason, to confront the heart of God's people who are far from Him. Distance in our souls. Secondly, if you're here and you're a believer and you, you, you're beating yourself up for whatever reason, I would encourage you to be acknowledged by the fact that you, you could even see that. That God would be good and kind enough for you to let you see that. Finally, if you don't believe in Jesus... He is a mighty warrior who takes sin upon himself so that you don't have to. He takes judgment so that we can know his mercy. He is undoing what is wrong with the world even now through his sacrificial death and his resurrection. So if you've never believed in Jesus and you need to know Jesus would you simply say, Jesus, I need you. I need to trust your death. I need to know the power of your resurrection. I need to place my faith in you. And if that's where you are in your heart right now, I'm in the back corner of the room and I'm here after worship for a little bit. I'd love to talk to you about what it means for you to walk with Jesus. Father, we trust you. And we trust, as we sing, that we get to acknowledge you in our hearts.